Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. Well, yesterday morning, I taught my five-year-old daughter how to ride a bike. It was really cool. It was a lot of fun. So we went out to the parking lot at the school in our neighborhood, and uh, we're 21st century parents, which means uh, she had on a helmet and knee pads and elbow pads. We wrapped her in bubble wrap, and we had some paramedics on standby just in case. Uh, so we, we did this. I, I you know, took a hold of her bike, handlebar, and the seat, and she got on it, and she put her feet on the pedals and started pedaling, and you know, we're walking down, you know, we're slowly going through the, the parking lot here. And after, you know, a few seconds, I'm like, she's doing all right. So I let go of the handle, still got the seat. You know, after a little, little while, I'm like, okay, here we go, here we go. Let's, let's try it. And guess what happened? She did it on the first try. I was like, oh my goodness, kid, that's, that's fantastic. That's not normally how it goes. With our older daughter, like most kids, it took a little bit longer, you know, a lot more trial and error, a lot more falling down and getting hurt and whatever. Uh, and do you remember this? Have you ever taught someone to ride a bike or you remember learning how to ride, ride a bike? That when you see other people riding their bike around, you think, man, it just looks so easy. They're, they're you know, making these sharp turns and they're cruising along and riding with no hands and it just looks effortless when they do it. But then you get on the bike and you're like, oh my gosh, this is super awkward. This is so weird. How, how do you do this? And you get going and you go five feet and you're like, oh, I, can't, I, I can hardly get anywhere with this. I think for a lot of us, when the subject of prayer comes up, it feels a little bit like that. You look around at other people, you're like, it sure seems to be easier for them than it feels for me. It, I, you know, I'm a follower of Jesus. I, I want to know God. And so it seems like prayer should be as natural and, and effortless as a kid riding a bike, you know? I, I know him, I love him, it shouldn't be hard to talk to him. But then you try it and you're like, how, why is it I don't know how to get started? Why is it that I can only go for a little while and then I kind of fall off, I'm distracted? What do I do about this? How can I actually have a meaningful prayer life? How can prayer go from being frustrating to being as effortless and enjoyable as riding a bike? That's the question we're asking in this series. We're calling it pray it like you mean it. Pray it like you mean it. How can we have a meaningful prayer life? The, the passage we're gonna be looking at both today and through the entire series is found in the book of Matthew. Go ahead and open up if you've got a Bible uh, to Matthew chapter six. It's really helpful if you're new to reading the Bible to know that the Bible is divided into two big sections. There's the Old Testament, which is everything that happens before Jesus. And then there's the New Testament, which is everything that happens after Jesus shows up. So. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, and the section we're going to be in is one of the most famous uh, speeches that Jesus ever gave. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And even if you have never picked up a Bible, you have probably heard a quote from this speech. Uh, it's where Jesus said things like, love your enemies, or turn the other cheek, or do unto others as you would have them do unto you, the golden rule. It's all in this speech. And the part we're going to be looking at is where Jesus actually says, here's how to pray. So let's pick it up in verse 5. Jesus says, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think that they'll be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. 
This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Around here, we love to thank God for speaking to us in his word. So let's do that. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, Jesus starts off by identifying a couple of forms of prayer that are pretty meaningless, prayers that don't mean a whole lot, two different kinds. One he call, we might call showy prayer, showy prayer. It's the sort of prayer that's really more about what you're trying to say to the people around you than what you're saying to God. It's when you're saying to everybody, hey, look at me, look how spiritual I am, aren't you impressed with me and how I'm praying? And in Jesus' day, this was really common because it was a, a society where religion had a lot of prestige. So people would go out on the street corner the way Jesus describes and they'd pray in, in showy ways. Or they'd be in the synagogue, their place of worship, and they'd be, you know, using these really fancy religious sort of language so that people would be impressed with them. In our society, religion doesn't have quite that sort of value, so there's a lot less showy prayer. Although, if you've been in kind of a churchy context, you might have run into this. You're praying with people, and all of a sudden, some guy's praying, and he's dropping in like SAT vocab words. You're like, omniscient, omnipotent, immutable, and you're like, I, what? I need a dictionary just to follow what you're doing. Or you're praying with people and they like drop into their special prayer voice. It's like the, the voice they only use when they're praying. It's like, okay, dear God, oh, God, we just need you so much. We love you. And you're like, dude, why'd your voice get raspy? Like that, it was not like two seconds ago. It was, it, you dropped an octave, dude. Like what, what are you doing? And you listen to this and you're like, okay, hang on. I, I don't feel like I could pray out loud in front of these people. I'm not as smart as that guy. I'm not as spiritual as that guy. What do I do here? Now, people probably aren't trying to show off, but it comes across in that sort of intimidating way. But Jesus says this. He's like, look, prayer doesn't need to be showy. It doesn't need to be anything fancy about it. In fact, it might even be better if you just went off in your room where no one could hear you and you pray in a closet. It, it could be that simple. And what Jesus is saying isn't, you know, don't ever pray in public. Uh, Jesus prayed in public a lot. There's lots of public prayers in the Bible. In fact, we're told when we gather as a church, we should pray together. But what Jesus is saying is this. God would rather have one simple prayer that nobody hears. It's just uttered privately, just, you know, in, in secret, than to have a thousand prayers that sound super impressive, but they're not really about talking to God. They're about showing off. Second form of prayer that Jesus says is pretty meaningless is what we might call magic prayer. Magic prayer. It's what he's talking about in verse 7. When he says, when you pray, don't keep on babbling like the pagans. They think that they're going to be heard because of their many words. This is the sort of prayer when you're just trying to say enough things that you'll land on the right thing that will get God to do what you want. It's more like an incantation than a conversation, you know? If you say the phrase right, you wave your wand the right way, the spell will be cast. Another analogy that might be helpful is when you've been searching for something online and you're looking for it and you're like, okay, what, do I, what, do I, what keyword do I actually use to get the result that I want? That's how a lot of people feel about God. They're like, okay, he's like Google. If I just say the right thing, he'll show me what I want. He'll give me what I want. And if I could just figure out what that was, it would work. And it's all about kind of manipulating God to give you what you want. Jesus says, you know what? You don't need that sort of prayer either. And he rejects both these kinds of prayer because he says it misunderstands what God is like. Look at how he describes God. In verse 6, he says, your father sees what is done in secret. That's why you don't need showy prayer because he knows exactly what's going on already. And then in verse 8, he says, your father knows what you need even before you ask. You don't have to tell him what's going on. He already knows. 
And so Jesus is saying, you don't need showy prayer or magic prayer because you can't impress God and you can't inform God. And as soon as you start trying to do those two things, that's when prayer starts to lose its meaning. And so Jesus offers kind of as an alternative, a simpler, more direct way to talk to God. He, he gives this model of prayer that we've come to call the Lord's Prayer, or sometimes it's called the Our Father. It's a very simple, straightforward way of praying, but Jesus says praying like this is the key to having a meaningful prayer life. What we're going to do over the next seven weeks is actually go through the seven different lines of this prayer and unpack how do we actually talk to God the way Jesus did. Now, before I jump into the first line of this prayer, I do want to address something because uh, some of you have encountered the Lord's Prayer before. Uh, there are many, many churches where they pray the Lord's Prayer every single week. In fact, throughout history, it would be a sure bet if you walked into a church in any culture, in any time or place, that they were going to pray the Lord's Prayer when you showed up. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. But if you were a part of a church that did this, and you were grown up there, or you spent some time there, and you're like, it just, I didn't connect. It was dull. It was dry. This just felt like something that was kind of empty and hollow. You might actually associate the Lord's Prayer with the opposite of what Jesus is talking about. You, you might actually feel like the Lord's Prayer is one of those repetitive, babbling kinds of prayers that doesn't mean a whole lot because it got overused or used in a way that was pretty empty. And so you listen to this and you say, how is that supposed to help me have meaningful prayer? It's a shame that this has happened for people because that's the exact opposite impression of what Jesus gave to people when he shared this prayer. If you are a first century Jew and you heard this, you'd say, man, that just sounds like ordinary everyday street language. It's just what people talk about. It's not high and lofty. It's not religious. It's just straightforward and direct. And it was refreshing because of that. And so the Lord's Prayer originally was the opposite of how a lot of people feel about it now. The other thing about the Lord's Prayer is that it wasn't given just to be a script, something you say word for word. It was given as something to be a pattern, a way to be a jumping off point for your prayer. Now, it's not a bad thing to pray it word for word. In fact, I would encourage you to do that to memorize the Lord's Prayer, to pray it daily, word for word. Uh, we're going to do that all throughout this series in the service. We're going to pray the Lord's Prayer together. But it's meant to go beyond that. It's meant to be a pattern that gets you started praying. So when I was teaching my daughter how to ride her bike, she was pretty good once she got going. She had the balance right away, like I said. But the thing that took her a few tries was actually getting started. That's kind of the hard part, you know? You go from a standstill. It's very awkward. You got to put a foot on a pedal, foot on the, the ground, and get a little bit of momentum. And once you're going, you're good. But that first part is really difficult. I think that's what the Lord's Prayer is supposed to be. Uh, the Lord's Prayer, the Psalms, other written prayers are meant to be things that sort of prime the pump, get you started, so that you can kind of start rolling on what you should be praying about. That's how we want to use it. So we're going to both pray it word for word, but we're also going to use it as sort of the, the prompt for the rest of our prayers. Well, let's actually jump into the prayer. We're going to look at the first line here, and it goes like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. As we look at this line, we're going to see two things about God, two things about God, that I think if you get them, if you internalize them, they will, they will move your prayer life from meaningless to meaningful. And the first one is this. God is a father who loves to hear your voice. God is a father who loves to hear your voice. Whenever you're reading through the Bible, a good tip to help make sense out of what's going on is to look for the titles, the names, the attributes of God that are included in the passage. It is especially helpful if you're in a difficult part of the Bible. Uh, some of you are reading with us in uh, the book of Isaiah. We're going through Bible savvy. We're in the book of Isaiah. That's a challenging book. And there have been times when we've come across passages where even I'm like, I'm not sure exactly what's going on here. 
And one of the things that you can do is to actually grab on and say, okay, in this passage, even if I don't get all of what's going on, can I see the name of God that's being used here? And you identify that. And then the question you ask is this, why did the author pick that name? Of all the hundreds of different images that they could have used for God, why did they pick this one? So when Jesus describes how to pray, pray, we got to ask the question, why did he pick the name Father? Why did he say our Father? He could have said our Creator, our Maker, our Judge, our King. He could have said all of these things. Why did he pick the image of Father? For a lot of us, the image of Father is a very warm one. It evokes good memories, makes us feel like home, it makes us feel safe and provided for, cared for, loved. For a lot of people, though, this is a really difficult image. It's hard to think of God as your father because of the experience you had with your own earthly father. Uh, Maybe your dad uh, abandoned you. Maybe he was abusive. Uh, Maybe your dad wasn't abusive, but he just wasn't a great guy. You know, he was kind of distant, always working, kind of gruff. And you just don't like to think of that sort of personality when you're addressing God. You're like, I don't don't want God to be sort of like that. Maybe you don't even have a lot of memories of your dad. He died when you were young or you never knew him. You got some pictures and that's about it. And, and so this idea of talking to God as father is just a difficult one for you. It, it's one of those ones that you say, I, I just don't know what to do with that. And it's inevitable that our experience with our earthly dads is gonna shape the way we feel about God as father. Even if not mentally, emotionally, it's gonna be part of that. So how do you actually pray this sort of prayer if you have that sort of feeling about the image? It, it's difficult to do, but I think what we need to do is actually reverse the image, the direction that it goes. Instead of saying, I'm gonna let my experience of fatherhood on earth shape how I experience my heavenly father, you're gonna say, I'm gonna take what the Bible describes about God as father and let that reshape how I understand fatherhood on earth. Uh, God says in another part of the Bible, I am a father to the fatherless. And for you, you might say, I had a literal earthly father, but the reality is functionally, spiritually, You're fatherless. There's a place in your heart that was supposed to be filled by the love of a father, but it got filled by something else, something that didn't fit there. And what God is saying is, I want to be a father for you, the father that your father wasn't or couldn't be. And I want to do that for you. There there are many of you, you need to steal back that word father and say, I refuse to let the things that happened to me, the things that human beings did, take that back. I was made to be loved by a father and I insist on having a good father, my father in heaven. I understand, like I said, that's easier said than done. And so if at this part of the prayer, it's difficult for you and and you have to wrestle, I understand that, that's that's not a problem and and it's okay, it's okay. But we do need to ask the question, what does it mean for God to be a good father? Now, let me describe three things at least that I think that this means. First is this, it means that if God is father, he comes with provision and we come to him with dependence. He comes with provision, we come with dependence. This is the reason why kids have fathers, because they need someone to provide for them. That's the the, the point of parents. It's actually what we call children in legal terms, right? There are dependents, our dependents. And the, the thing is, this doesn't go both ways. Parents don't need their children in the same way that their children need them. You gotta understand this. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need you or me. His life would go on just fine if we did not exist. But the reverse is true. We desperately, desperately need God. We need him for everything, big and small. There is no area of your life where you can say, eh, I got this, I don't need God in this. When we were going out to the parking lot to teach my daughter to ride her bike, my, uh, my son came along too and he wanted to bring his tricycle. 
And we got to a part where we had to cross a field to get to this parking lot. And so I just picked up the tricycle to carry it across the field. And my son, as we do this, he reaches up and puts his hand on the tricycle and goes, we're carrying this, Dad. We're carrying this, Dad. And I'm like, ah, I'm carrying this, son. You know, you can think that if you want. That's how we are in all of life with God. He, he's carrying it. We might think, yeah, I got this. I did this. I earned this. This is mine. But when it comes down to it, he's saying, no, no, no. I got this, son. I got this, daughter. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Some of you feel really ashamed when you pray. You think, you know, I, I, there's this thing that's on my mind. And I just don't want, I don't want to talk to God about that. He's not going to care about that. It's really dumb. I, pro- I probably shouldn't pray about this sort of thing. And here's what God says to you. No, 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 no. Bring it to me. I already know. It doesn't matter how big or small it feels, how, how silly it seems to you. I know you need me. And it's okay. I don't mind. I, I take seriously the fact that you need me and you're dependent on me. Here's the second thing it means for God to be father. It means that God has authority and we submit to him. He has authority and we submit to him. Parents have authority over their children. They're in charge. And we don't like to talk about authority very much. It kind of makes us uncomfortable. But it's actually a good thing for kids that they've got parents in charge. Because kids don't know what's best for them. Very often, if they, get what they, they got what they wanted, if they got what they asked for, it would not be a good thing for them. They need someone who is in charge and responsible for them. So what this means when, with prayer is that if God's in charge, we can come to him and say, God, this is what I want. You can say anything you want to God. And you can trust that God is going to take seriously that, that request and not give you something that would actually be, be bad for you. It actually frees you up to say, hey, God, you know what? I, I think this would be good. I think I want this. But you know what? I'm going to trust you that you're going to provide exactly what I actually need. It, it might be this. It might be something else. And that's, a, that's a, a wonderful thing. It's the reason why we say your will be done in the Lord's prayer. It's our way of acknowledging, God, hey, we're, we're submitting to your will. I'm going to tell you what I want, but I'm going to trust you for the result. There's another place where Jesus talks about God as a good father. And he says, uh, you know, if you ask your father for a piece of bread, he's not going to give you a stone, right? And if you ask him for a fish, he's not going to give you a snake, right? Well, guess what? The reverse is also true. If you ask for a snake from God, he's not going to give you a snake. He's going to give you the fish you didn't ask for. If you ask him for a stone, he's not going to be like, yeah, well, you asked for a stone, dummy. He's going to say, no, here's the bread you should have asked for. And you may whine and be like, but I wanted the stone. But in the long run, you're going to be happy that he nourished you and gave you what you actually needed. He has authority, and so we submit to him and what he gives us. Third thing it means is this, and this is, I think, the most important thing. If God is our father, it means his heart is willing so our hearts can be confident. His heart is willing, so our hearts can be confident. This, this is so, so important. God is a good father, which means he starts off, even before you come to him, even before you approach him, he starts off with a disposition to care for you, to be good to you, to give to you, to love you, to provide for you. I, I remember the experience of when my first daughter was born. In the hospital, the, three seconds after she's born, and, and I'm looking at her, I'm holding her. And, and all she's ever done in her life is scream out and cry. This is it. But this feeling rushes over me of, I would do anything for this girl. I would do anything. Whatever she needs, whatever, whatever, whatever uh, things she goes through, I'm going to be there for her. I would die for her. This moment. And she had never done anything. She had never impressed me. She, she had never proven herself. She had never, you know, shown love back to me. She didn't even know who I was or couldn't understand what was going on to her. But it didn't matter. 
The reason I loved her wasn't because of anything about what she had done or who she was. It was simply because she existed and because she was mine. And I think that's how God feels about you and me. He, he, he loves us way ahead of time. You, you, don't, you don't have to earn his attention. You don't have to, to convince him to care about you. You don't have to be worthy for him to be willing. He loves you and he always has. He, even before you ever knew there was a God, he was already crazy about you. And that means when you pray, you can be confident. You, you can approach God and you can be confident that he's hearing you, he listens. You can be confident that he cares about what's going on in your life. You can be confident that he wants what's best for you. He is a good, good father. And here's what all of this means. It means we need to stop overthinking prayer. We just need to stop overthinking it. I'm going to be recommending three books on prayer over the course of this series. Uh, three books are this, Prayer by Tim Keller. It's a great practical theology of prayer, really wise. Uh, prayer Coach by our senior pastor, Jim Nicodem. Uh, this is a highly, highly practical book. If you want exercises and things that will actually get you praying, this is a great book for that. And then my favorite book on prayer called A Praying Life by Paul Miller. Uh, and Paul's entire book is really about what it means to approach God as father. And one of the things that makes it really good is that uh, he gets special insight into this because he has a daughter with special needs. And so some of the stories he tells and the, the things that he reflects on because of that are just really, really rich. But this is what uh, Paul Miller says about praying like a child. He says, let's do a quick analysis of how children ask. What do they ask for? Everything and anything. If they hear about Disneyland, they want to go tomorrow. How often do little children ask? Repeatedly, over and over again. They wear us out. Sometimes we give in just to shut them up. How do little children ask? Without guile. They just say what's on their minds. They have no awareness of what's appropriate or inappropriate. Children are supremely confident of their parents' love and power. Instinctively, they trust. They believe their parents want to do them good. If you know your parent loves you, it fills your world with possibility. You just chatter away with what's on your heart. Little children can't imagine that their parents won't eventually say yes. They know if they keep pestering their parents, they'll eventually give in. Childlike faith drives this persistence. He goes on to talk about how when you're talking with a child, they never stay on topic. You ever, you ever talk to a kid? They're like, oh, this sounds so interesting, squirrel. You know, like it's, it, it, it just bounces all over the place. He, he says, why, why shouldn't our prayer life be sort of like that? You ever feel that way? You ever started praying and you're distracted and you're like, oh, I can't focus at all? What should you do when that happens? You should just talk about wherever your mind goes, just like a little kid would with their parents. You just, you just say, hey, God, are you worried about something? You say, this, this is what I'm anxious about, God. Can I tell you about it? You want something. You say, God, I want this. And you don't. You don't think, oh, God, God uh, maybe it's not appropriate for me to want this or whatever. You just say, I want this. What do you think about that? Should I want that? Should I not want that? Don't, don't hold back. Just talk to him about it. You, you need something. You should cry out to him like a kid in a thunderstorm. Say, Dad, Mom, I need you. That's what a kid does, right? So you pray to God with, with whatever is going on in your life. So many of us, we overthink prayer. We get anxious because we're like, oh, did I say it right? Did I cover the right things? Did I do it the right way? And it's like, no, 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 no. A kid never does that when they're talking to their parents. They just talk. And God's not annoyed by this. He's not surprised when you bring things up. He already knows what you need before you say it. And he's a good father. So you know what a good father wants most from his kids? Their hearts. Their hearts. With Annalise and Lydia and Silas, the thing that I desire most from them is that they would trust me with what's really going on in their lives. 
that they would talk to me about their hopes and their fears. When they're successful and they're proud about it and they fail and they feel ashamed about it, I want to hear it. They, they talk to me about their relationships and their feelings and the things, the things that bother them, the things that excite them. I just, I just want to hear what's going on inside. You know what breaks a parent's heart? It's not when their kid keeps coming to them saying silly things and why are you talking to me about this? What really breaks a parent's heart is when they stop talking to them at all. And I think that's how God feels about us. He loves, he loves to hear your voice. Don't stop talking to him. He's a good father. Here's the second thing that we see about God in this prayer. is that he is a king, he is a king who is worthy of your worship. He is a king who is worthy of your worship. I love how in just the opening line, just the opening couple of words of this prayer, Jesus brings together two things that most people instinctively push apart. He starts off by saying, our father, which is this warm, close image, and then immediately says, in heaven. If you read through the Bible in the Old Testament, you find uh, it saying things like, God is enthroned in the heavens. He is exalted above the heavens. He looks down from the heavens. Speaking of the heavens is a way of speaking of God's power and glory and authority, his rule, his might. Uh, theologians, they love really big words. And so they describe this as God being eminent and transcendent. Eminent and transcendent. The word eminent means that God is up close and personal. He's near, like a father. Uh, he, it, transcendent means he is above and beyond. He is exalted. He's like a king. And, and so Jesus brings these two things together. And I think it is genius that he does this. Because you need both aspects of God if you really want to have a, a prayer life that's meaningful. I mean, think about what happens if you only get one or the other. If you only have the up close and personal, the eminent God, what he's like is sort of like a good friend who's really sympathetic. You're talking and, and they listen really well and they cry with you. And they say encouraging things and say, oh, man, that's so hard. You're going to make it. It's going to be okay. But then you hang up the phone, and you still got to solve your problem on your own. felt nice to talk to them, but they didn't really make a difference in the problem. That's what it's like to have an up-close and personal God who is not also above and beyond. But let's say you only have a transcendent God who's above and beyond, who's high and lofty. You can stand in awe of that God. You can be amazed at that God, but it doesn't make a difference in your life either. It's sort of like reading stories about billionaires and celebrities and politicians and people with power and all sorts of stuff. And you say, man, their lifestyle, look at that, the things that they can do. But when it comes down to it, they might as well be a character in a movie because you don't know them. They're not your friends. They make no difference in your life. They're far beyond you. The amazing thing about God is that he is both high and lofty and powerful and can do whatever he wants, but he's also close and near and he loves you. He, he both wants to care for you, and he's, and he's also able to care for you. That's what's so incredible about God. It, it unleashes your prayer life when you know this. I, I love wrestling with my kids. Uh, my son, my two-year-old son, uh, he loves uh, to wrestle and, and you know, grapple with me. He calls me T-Rex Daddy, and I call him Triceratops Son. And one of his favorite things, he did it this morning, is he'll see me across the kitchen. He'll be like in the living room and he'll see me and he'll kind of like back up and like wind up, you know. And they'll come running across the kitchen and try to slam right into me, you know, like knock me over like a triceratops. And so we, we wrestle and we do all this stuff. And the other day we were uh, wrestling and I had him kind of pinned down on the ground. And at one point I sort of just like flopped over, like not my whole weight. He couldn't hold that up, but just enough that he like couldn't move, you know. He's like, ah, ah, and he's wriggling and trying to get out. And he's like, ah, you know. And after a minute, I just sort of lift up and he goes, 
<laughs> again, daddy. So I flop my weight back down. He's like, uh, I can't get out. I can't get out. And we probably did this five or six times. Again, daddy. He wanted me. He wanted me to overwhelm him like that. Now, this is really just kind of playing around with my kid, but I think something more profound is going on there. The reason I think this is important for him is because a kid needs to know that their dad can't just be pushed around, that you can't move dad unless he wants to be moved, that he's big and powerful. And the reason I think this is important for my kids to know is not because I want to dominate them or control them, overwhelm them in life. The, the exact opposite, in fact. I want them to feel so secure and so free that they need to know that I'm powerful. Because here's the thing, if he knows, this little two-year-old boy knows that the most powerful, biggest, strongest thing in his world also loves him, everything's fine. He's going to be okay. I think every single heart actually needs to know that. You need to know that the biggest, most powerful thing in the world loves you and is on your side. And when you get that, it, it opens up the possibilities. You say, it's going to be okay. I, I can bring anything. I can bring anything to that. He's on my side. He's for me. Our father wants to help, and he's a king who is able to do it. Let's look at the first request that we make of our Father in heaven. Jesus says, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. This word is the word where people check out. They're like, wait, I thought you said this wasn't like a high and lofty religious thing. What in the world does hallowed mean? Like that's a word that you only say in church. And the only reason you say it in church is because it's in this prayer. And the only reason it's in this prayer is because people have included it in this prayer forever. Okay, the reason it never leaves the prayer is because if translators of the Bible take out this old archaic word, people freak out. They're like, I memorized that prayer when I was a kid and you took out that word and you're like, I, do you know what that word means? No, but I really want it in there. It's like, okay, I think you guys are smart, smart enough to learn what the word means, okay? So the word hallowed means this, to treat something as holy, to treat something as holy. Now you're like, hey, that definition didn't help. Like holy, that's another one of those church words. What does that mean? Holy is a really important word. This is one of the ones we're going to keep. Holy means this. It means to be separate or set apart, which at first sounds like a bad thing, like someone got put in time out, you know, like, oh, that's very holy. It's like, no, that's not what I'm talking about. Um, let me use a, a few uh, sort of ordinary non-religious examples of being holy because uh, it's separate more in the sense of being special or committed. So, for example, if uh, an athlete gets signed to a team, they are now holy. They're hollowed towards that team. They can't play for another team. They can't publicly cheer for another team. They can't uh, wear another team's logo. They are set apart, separated from all other teams. They're holy towards one team. When someone gets married, they get separated from the entire rest of the romantic playing field. They're separated, committed. Their body, their, their partnership, their life is joined with one person and one person only. They are holy, hollowed to that person. A, a, a more lighthearted example. Uh, in uh, my mother-in-law, she has a plate called the birthday plate. Okay, the birthday plate is not like ordinary plates. You only use it on birthdays. And you cannot eat off of that plate unless you are the birthday boy or the birthday girl. It says, it's your day, and if it's not your day, you don't get to use it. That plate is holy. It's used for special, separate occasions. That's what holiness means. Now, in a religious context, that takes on more weight because there, there's some seriousness to that, but that's the basic idea. And so Jesus says, you gotta treat God's name like the birthday plate. You don't just use it in everyday, ordinary ways. It's separated. It has honor and a special, special use. Now, here's the question you should be asking. 
What does it mean to treat God's name as holy? What does he mean by his name? Because the idea here is a little bit more complex than just what we call God. It, it does mean that on sort of a literal level, talking about God's personal name. Uh, the name when, when God spoke to Moses at the burning bush, he said, I am who I am. My name in Hebrew is Yahweh. Yahweh. That's a very special name. It's a name that God says, I'm going to trust you with my personal name. This is who I am. And, and, and the Bible tells us to take seriously how we speak about that name. In fact, throughout history, uh, both Jews and Christians, for the most part, have said, we're not even going to pronounce that name. We're not even going to say it out loud. Uh, Jews in the Hebrew Old Testament, they, uh, they, uh, when they actually come across the name of God, they say a different word. They say the word Adonai rather than pronounce that name. Because they say, we, even though we probably could say it, we're not even going to go close to it because we don't want to accidentally say it in a casual, uh, a disrespectful way. So we're just going to say something different because we want to preserve the holiness of that name. For me personally, I only ever use that term in the context of worship. If I'm preaching, if I'm singing a song to God, if I'm praying to God, I don't just say it casually because I think it ought to be respected. But Jesus is talking about more than just how you use the personal name of God. He's talking about the kind of metaphorical idea of someone's name. Think about this. When we say that someone has a good name, we mean they have a good reputation. Or we say that company has a bad name. What we mean is they have kind of a bad perception. People look on them and they say, ah, the, you know, I'm not so sure about that place. It, it, it's the idea of what people say and think publicly about someone. That is your name. That is your reputation. And so what Jesus is saying is you should pray that God has a good reputation. That when people speak of God, they honor him. They give him glory. They give him respect. They, they treat him as high and lofty. In other words, this is a prayer that God would be worshiped. So God's saying, pray that I would be worshiped. Now, think about that. That's a very weird prayer request. Let's say you were in your community group and the time came to go around the circle and share prayer requests and you got to this one guy and he said, you know, kind of at the top of my list, first thing I'd have you pray for is that whenever people talk about me, that they just be overwhelmed with awe. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah, every time they say my name, that it would just be like, that's the best thing in the world. I'd be like, what, what do you do with that guy? Like, you're like, uh, you need some serious help, dude. How arrogant is it to say, I want to be worshipped? Well, how is it that God can get away with saying that? Two reasons he can do this. First is this. Objectively, God is the very best thing. Like just by definition, he is the very best thing. So God always evaluates things the way that they are. He says things like they are. So if you go to God and you say, what is the very best? What, what is the, the highest thing, the thing that should be exalted above all? What, what in the entire realm of existence is most worthy of honor and worship? For God to not lie to you, he has to say, me. I should be worshiped and honored because he is actually the most valuable best thing in existence. Second reason God says to worship him is because it's actually the very best thing for us. It's the very best thing for us. So let's say you go to God and you say, God, I want to be happy. And I don't just mean like a little bit happy, like content or something like that. I mean, overwhelmed with pleasure, ultimate satisfaction, the very highest that I can get. How do I do it? Give me, give me it. Come on, God. What would God give you? Well, if you went to the father, he would say, well, here, the son and the spirit. How about that? And if you went to the Son, he'd say, well, I think the Father and the Spirit. And if you went to the Spirit, he'd say, yeah, the Father and the Son. That's what you should have. 
And the reason they would answer that way is because of all eternity, for all eternity, that's what they've been doing. They've been like, you know what? I have been experiencing the greatest, highest pleasure. And you know what it is? Knowing these guys, adoring them, looking at them, worshiping them, being in awe with them. There is nothing better than this. This is the greatest. They know. And so they know if, if we want to give you what would be very best for you, most satisfying for you, the ultimate joy, this is the best thing we can give you. Worship. Do this. That will satisfy your soul. So when God says, worship me, he's not saying it out of arrogance or insecurity, like, come on, just tell me I'm great. He's like, he's got all the worship he needs in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's the best. He doesn't need your worship. When he says, worship me, he's saying, you need worship. I don't need worship, but you need worship. To not worship is to be in a hell of desires that would never be met. If you don't worship, you will be forever restless and aching and unfilled. It's good for us to honor God's name. It's satisfying. It's the best thing that could happen to us or to the world. Now, let me get really practical here. How do you actually pray the prayer, hallowed be your name? Just like today or tomorrow when you go to pray, how would you actually carry this out other than just saying the line? Let me give you two practical suggestions here. First is this, pray the names of God. Pray the names of God. Simple way to do this is as you're reading through the Bible, just note the places where God has called something. Kind of just jot that down. And then when you go to pray, grab one of those names and, and pray about it. Uh, another way to do this is uh, around here, we've actually made a list of the attributes and titles and names of God. Uh, there's several hundred on this list. We, we think we've got you know, the majority of them uh, from the Bible, but there's probably more. Um, and they're on this list and you can just grab one of these. We've got them available at all of the info counters and on your way out as you leave today. And, and what you might do is whether it's from the Bible or whether it's from this list, you just pick one of the names and you say, okay, I, you know what? It says he's the king of kings. He's the king of kings. So then you talk to God about being the king of kings. So you might, for example, say this, Jesus, I want to honor you because you are the king of kings. You, you are exalted. You have authority. You have all the rule. And, and what this means is that every king, every queen, every president, every prime minister, every congress, every, every judge, they, they must bow before you. Jesus, you are greater than all of the nations of the world. Every empire, every dynasty will fall, but you, you will reign. And, and so I bow my knee before you, before your throne. I pledge my allegiance to you above all. You are the king of kings. And you just sort of riff on that idea. You talk to God about that name. And you, you, if you can't think of that much, you say, Clayton, I, can't, I couldn't think of all that stuff. I could say like one sentence. No big deal. You just do that for one, one name, and then you pick another name. Say, okay, God, you're the good shepherd. And you just start talking about that idea. And what you'll find is that as you do this, more and more things will come to mind. You'll get better and better at doing this as you make this a regular practice. You will also find that if you do this on a regular basis, when you come into these gatherings like this and we're singing worship songs, we're praying to God, and a, a name of God comes up on the screen in, in a lyric in a song, all of a sudden your heart's gonna be filled with so much more. There's gonna be more there that, that propels your worship. Your experience here will become more powerful for having done that in your private life. Here's the second practical thing that you could do. You could pray for others to honor God. You could pray for others to honor God. Notice that this prayer that Jesus tells us to pray is not, God, your name is holy. It's hallowed be your name. May your name be holy. May your name be honored. And so this is not just a prayer of your worship. It's a prayer for other people to worship God. I want them to worship God. So here's how you do this. Very practical. You go to that list of names of God. You pick out one of those names. And you don't just pray to God about this. You actually pick another person in your life. You pick your mom 
or your best friend, or that jerk in the cubicle next to you, or your crush from afar, or your standoffish neighbor, or your congressman. I don't care who it is. You pick a person and you say, okay, God, I pray that they would experience you as this. So if you're, an example, if I was going to pray for my mom and the name I picked was God is a good shepherd, I might pray this, God, I pray that my mom would experience you as her good shepherd. I pray that she would know your kindness as you lead her, as you provide for her, help her to trust you, to bring her to safe places, help her be refreshed. You're the shepherd who leads us to water, so lead her to water, protect her from the enemy. Now just think about what it means for God to be a shepherd, and I pray those things for my mom or for whoever. And then as I pray, you, you, you pray that God would turn that person's heart to actually worshiping God for that thing. So I, I might say, God, I, I pray that my mom would adore you as the good shepherd, that she'd be in awe, she'd marvel at the fact that you care for her day in and day out. I pray that she'd be satisfied in you as her good shepherd. I just pray for her heart that way. And, and as you do that, you can just let your imagination run wild. Say, what would it be like for for this person in my life to know this about God? What would happen in their life if that happened? Can you think of anything that would be better for the people in your life, for your kids, your siblings, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, whoever, than for them to know and love God for those things? I can't think of anything better. They don't even have to be Christ followers for you to do this. You can just pray for people in your life who don't even believe in God and say, God, I pray that one day they would be aware of who you are and they would honor you and praise your name. Now, some of you are hearing this saying, oh, maybe, I might try that. I might do that this week. Okay, here's a very practical thing. If you want to actually do this this week, I, I want you to take this practical step. Decide exactly when you're going to do that, okay? Most of you, you, look, true confession. I'm one of the pastors. I sit here and I listen to other people preach and I'm like, oh yeah, that's good. That's good, that's good. I'm gonna do that. And I walk out of here and it's like, nah, no, nah, I didn't do it. You ever do that, Okay. It's usually because the first step is saying, do I actually know when I'm going to carry that out? Because I'm just going to go on autopilot. You need to decide before you leave, when are you going to pray this week? Every single day. The best way to do it is to attach it to something you already do, a habit you already have. So you say, I always eat breakfast, so here's what I'm going to do. Five extra minutes at the breakfast table, I'm going to pray right there. Or before bed, I'm going to pray. Or uh, on the train as I go into work. Or uh, while I'm working out, I'm going to pray. Or in the driveway before I walk into my house at the end of the day. You just pick a time and you say, when that happens, I'm going to pray right then. And if you've never prayed before, you say, just start with five minutes. Or three minutes, if that's all you can pull off. But doing it is more important than how long you do it. Doing it more often is more important than doing it for a long time once. So do this. Pray the Lord's Prayer this week, each day. And then Pick an attribute of God, worship him for it, and pray for somebody else about that. Try it for a week and see how that goes. We're going to prepare to celebrate communion now. And as we do this, I just want to highlight one last thing about this prayer. And I think it's actually the most amazing thing about the Lord's Prayer, and it's the very first word. It's our Father. Our. Our Father. Think about this. Who is the only person in the world that can actually call God his Father? Jesus. Only the Son can call God the Father. Only Jesus can do that. So why is it that we pray our Father, not His Father? We pray it because Jesus shared with us what rightfully belonged to Him. Jesus, when He invites us to pray, this is what He's doing. He's saying, I want you to join into the life and family of God. 
I want you to join in the conversation of the Trinity. This is what prayer is. It's joining with the Son and talking to the Father in the power of the Spirit. And so this is the reason Jesus died, to make this possible for us, that we could actually enter into the family of God so that we could be adopted into his family. And it's the reason we celebrate communion, because this is the place where Jesus gathers his brothers and sisters and said, hey, let's sit at the family meal and enjoy the love of our Father. Enjoy the love of our Father. So we're going to do that now. Uh, We're going to close here with uh, praying. And instead of me just praying, I want us to actually pray the Lord's Prayer together. So let's put it up on the screen here. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one.